So, I'm um, going to start a new series today. Um, drum roll. No, it's okay. Uh, we're going to look at John's Gospel. We're going to look at John's Gospel. We've looked at Matthew's Gospel in Cafe Church a few years ago now since we did that. And then we, we've uh, done a few things in between times. Uh, but I want us to spend some time in John. And as we do, we'll take, we'll take little breaks along the way and so on. But that's where we're going to be for a little while. So, um, if you're journeying with us, let's, uh, let's sit at John's feet. And uh, think with him about Jesus. So John chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 to 18, the words of the Apostle John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. God bless this word to our understanding. One of my lecturers at college once commenting on those words, the word became flesh. She said, um, yeah, she said, I think in my experience, she said, you take about five years thinking about the word, five years thinking about became, and five years 
thinking about flesh. <laughs> In other words, from her perspective, these words are a, are a rich treasury that no way am I going to do justice to because we can spend and ought to spend justifiably a lifetime mining the power and the depth and the truth of, of what is written here. John begins his gospel in a very different way from any of the other gospel writers. And this is one of the readings that will come out at Christmas time. So, you know, the shops are already starting, so we may as well too. This is one of those uh, origin stories. I'm intrigued as I think about the four gospels, about the fact that each of them begins with Jesus' origins in a different way. Mark is probably the uh, first and the earliest gospel. Mark begins his gospel by talking about how John the Baptist came first, and then describes how Jesus came following John the Baptist. And so Mark is interested in telling us how the story began, how it was that the story began when John the Baptist appeared and then Jesus shortly after. Matthew, by contrast, begins by telling us, well, actually, let's take Luke next, in fact. Because Luke begins his gospel by telling us not just how uh, the story of Jesus' ministry began, which is where Mark begins, but Luke begins by telling us where the story of Jesus' earthly life began. And so he begins by telling us about Zechariah and Elizabeth who could not conceive, and then John the Baptist was conceived. And then goes on, as we know at Christmas, to tell us about the conception and the birth of Jesus. And so we have a story about Jesus' earthly origins. And a little bit later on, Luke adds in, in chapter 3 another origins story where he adds a genealogy. And he, being Gentile, non-Jewish, adds an extra dimension, not just where Jesus' life on earth began, but then he traces that earthly ancestry all the way back, and he, and he starts <coughs> with Jesus, and he starts with Joseph, <coughs> who adopted him and conferred on him the rights of an adopted son in his earthly lineage, and traces that line all the way back to Adam. So there we've got another origin. So just hold those. I'm just spinning plates here. So Mark's got Jesus' story beginning with John the Baptist. Luke's got Jesus' life beginning with the birth narratives and then takes the origins all the way back to the Son of Man, all the way back to Adam. Matthew begins with an origin story. Uh, sorry, not with an origin story. Matthew begins with a genealogy and he traces all the way back to Abraham. So he's interested in a Jewish audience because he wants to show that Jesus' origins are all the way back in the promises of God with Abraham. Because Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, was the beginning of the story of God's redemption plan. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell us about the creation, and then they go on to talk about the fall, and then there's a repeat cycle of falls which lead all the way through, through uh, uh, Cain and Abel and Noah, all the way to the Tower of Babel. And it's just God giving them another chance and they blow it, another chance and they blow it, another chance and they blow it. 
And then there's a kind of scene change. We cut to Abraham, one man. And the salvation story begins with Abraham and the promises God gave to Abraham. And so Matthew traces Jesus' beginnings to God's promised salvation plan through Abraham. There's another origin. The beginning of what of God beginning the journey of fixing things through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the twelve tribes, the nation of Israel, etc., etc. So quite a number of different beginning stories, and John takes a different approach again. John wants to take us back even further still. Not to the beginning of his ministry, not to the beginning of his life. Not to the beginning of God's salvation plan through Abraham. Not even just to the beginning where he can trace his ancestry to Adam. John wants to take it back even further. He wants you to know and understand who this Jesus is. When I was away on holiday recently, I was at a course, and I bought a commentary, a new commentary on John. Yay! And I was reading and preparing for this. And, and John's gospel begins with the words, and it's quite deliberate and quite clear that he's making a connection at the beginning of his gospel with the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning. In the beginning. It's not the only one. Matthew and Mark similarly have words and phrases that echo the in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he wants to take us back to even before creation, because it starts off with the, the relationship and it starts off with the connection. He wants to start us off with the fact that you cannot separate God from His Word. And we're not talking about Jesus by name yet, although this is Jesus that we're talking about. And He wants us to understand the indivisibility of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wants us to understand that, that, that just as one is, so the other one is. And, and this guy in his commentary had a couple of useful illustrations. And he talked about, uh, he talked from the, from the, from the, the world of, of horticulture, that effectively from a root comes a flower. Without the root, there will not be the flower in terms of a river, there is a source of a river, but then there is the water downstream from the river, and it's all water. One is the source, the other is the river. In a plant, there is the root, and then there is the, the shoot and the flower and the fruit, but it's all one. And the one precedes the other, but is so inseparable from the other that without the one, the other has no point or purpose. God, the Father, the Creator, is the essence. 
God is spirit, says John in chapter 4, or says Jesus in chapter 4 in John. And so God is the essence, and Jesus the expression of that essence. There's an unbroken, indivisible line. Both the same, one derives from the other, expresses the other. Now, I suspect that you and I have in common that we are not, if we're going to be completely honest with ourselves, 100% creatures of our word. I suspect that hand on heart, we can easily think of times in our lives where we have said, yes, I'll do that, but we've forgotten to do that. Yes, I'll pray for you, but we forgot to actually pray. Yes, I'll remember to pick up the milk from the supermarket, but we come in empty-handed. And those are some of them trivial examples. But any time we open our mouths to pledge or vow, be it in our profession of faith in church, be it in a marriage service, we will say words and our meaning and our intention will be hopefully, absolutely, to do what we say we're going to do. That's our highest aspiration. We want to be people of our word, to have integrity. But the reality is that we're often short of that, right? We make promises and we don't keep them. We say we'll do something and we let somebody down. We make a pledge or a vow or a promise, but we find ourselves breaking it. Our words are not always our bond. (laughs) The difference here is that what God says, He does. What God has said, He will do. Indeed, the Hebrew word davar for means both word and action. Word and action. So when God speaks, He makes it so. When Jesus spoke, it was so. And so there's no division in God between what he says and what happens as a consequence, what he intends and what is brought about. That's why we have confidence in God's word. This is not just a book, but this is a a book which contains the word that God has spoken, which he will not neglect, fall short of, or fail to fulfill. It's why so much of of the gospel stories, indeed so much of the New Testament, talks about the fulfilling of Scripture. Because it's pointing out that what God said, He does. And what was said then happens now. And so in the beginning, before there was any creation, before there was anything, there was this unbroken relationship, God, the source and the essence of all things, and the Word, the the expression, the Word, the deed, the outworking of that essence, the flow. And so God, who reveals to Moses His name, I am, I am who I am, that's my name. And it's in John's gospel that we find seven times, and we'll look at them, finger problems, 
we will find the seven I am sayings of Jesus, where Jesus fleshes out, fills in the detail of what I am means. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. And so on and so forth. We'll see them when we come to them. Who God is and what he does in an unbroken continuum. And so God, just as a side note, is trustworthy. It's very, very important. It's not just important. It's a describer of who God is that he does what he says. Not just so he doesn't disappoint you. Not just because he doesn't want to let you down. Not just because he would be hurt if he didn't. Much more profound than that. Why can you trust what God has said in his word? Because if God doesn't do what he says he's going to do, then there's a break in something that hitherto has been unbroken. There's something that he said that didn't happen. Now, you see, sometimes we apply our broken and inconsistent mindset to God. And we say, well, he said this, but he hasn't done it. We haven't seen how he's done it. We haven't seen when he'll do it. We haven't seen how the outworking of it might be. This world is full of words and promises, and many of them empty. How much was it the NHS was going to get back every week? 360 million? How long did that promise last? A day? Till it was blown open and proved to be hollow and empty. We're full of boasts and promises. Walk up and down Buchanan Street, you'll find a million advertising slogans that will make promises to you that how your life is going to be utterly transformed if you will just invest in their product. And you know that when someone phones you up, eager to help recover your PPI, that actually they're not that interested in your well-being, despite their pledge of concern that you should get what you're entitled to. We lie all the time. We break our word. We're inconsistent. But God is different in that he doesn't and is to be trusted and relied upon. And therefore, if you've received, as you're here, so I'm trusting that most of you are, but some of you may be on a journey and finding out more about Jesus. You see, if you've received Jesus and put your faith in him, you have put your faith in one whose word will not be broken, not for your benefit, but for the glory and honor of his name because of who he is. And God's word and his promises are, are active. What he says will happen. I read in the paper yesterday that apparently when the discussion, when Prince Andrew was having a discussion with Her Majesty the Queen as to where his daughter Eugenie, have I got that right? I'm so terrified to pronounce that word now. Everyone gets it wrong, apparently. I think it's Eugenie. It's not Eugenie. Well, we can have this conversation afterwards. There's probably at least three different ways. Anyway, Andrew's younger daughter got married yesterday. 
And when they were making the arrangements, Andrew went to see the Queen, and the Queen informed Andrew that the marriage would take place at St. George's Chapel at Windsor. She didn't ask him. <laughs> she didn't consult with him. She didn't bring the couple and say, now, where would you like to have your service? Have you scouted around for a good venue? She informed. And once her word had been given, apparently according to this little bit I read in the Times yesterday, Andrew's only answer was, aye, aye, ma'am. <laughs> you see, if somebody has the authority that their words make things happen, then there's no point in arguing with them. And so we have John taking us right back to point out that we are being brought into a relationship with God, and we will get to it. I'm wondering if we will today. We might spend more than one week on this. We are being invited to be into a relationship with a God whose word is not weak. We're being invited into a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and brought into a family which is not fickle or empty or hollow or full of vague hopes. We're being brought into a word and a relationship of strength, of promise, and of certainty which predates the creation of the world. That's how strong and secure it is. And so when you read God's Word, know that He is jealous to defend it because it's His reputation on the line. Know that His Word is active because He does what He says. Know that God has invited you into a strength and a certainty that will outlive everything that is going on around us today. And so, if God is the source, Jesus is the expression. He was with God in the beginning. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, in order to get round this awkward and inconvenient verse, because they say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. I've had to change their translation, or rather, they've had to change, uh, yeah, they've had to change their translation of the New Testament, because Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that Jesus is a God, but not God, which is how we know it's heresy and a cult and not true. He was with God in the beginning. And then we have the creation. So then we have this journey. So source to expression. And then we have from expression expressing itself in creation. Okay? So the Son, the Word, derives from the Father. He's the, the source, the expression flowing from the source. And then that expression is further expressed in creation. And so he was involved in everything. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so we're now treading on the picture of, of creation that we find in, in Genesis 1. Because these words... 
go back further than Genesis 1. Okay, spot that. Because these words describe what was going on before anything was made. These words start by describing this relationship, this unbroken, fluid relationship between God, His Word, His deeds, who He is. Genesis 1 begins by saying in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, awesome, incredible, powerful statement. And it talks about how the earth was formless and void, like some barren planet. Here's an interesting thought. When did Satan fall? Because if the premise and the presence of evil were, was already there at creation, was already there to be right in at the beginning as soon as the instruction was given, when did Satan fall? Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When did that happen? I don't have the answer to that question in case you're hoping that I do. But I wonder if the beginning of the scene that we're set in Genesis chapter 1 is the, some kind of uh, primordial chaos, some post-apocalypse. I don't know. Was the earth formless and void because God created out of this raw material of some cosmic disaster that had predated it with the fall of Satan? I don't know. I'm just intrigued by these things. Don't dwell on them if it upsets you. And so, in the beginning was the Word. The earth was formless and void, and all things were made through Jesus, because God said, let there be light. God spoke, and it happened, word and deed, davar. You ever wonder where's Jesus in the beginning of Genesis? Right there, God said, let there be light. And so, He said, let there be light. And John tells us that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And so, source to expression, expression to creation, creation to life, life to light. I went to the Dynamic Earth Exhibition in Edinburgh once. I've been for a long time. But I was, they've got some kind of, now it's all evolution. Evolution is king in the Dynamic Earth Exhibition. There is no space for creation. But it fascinates me because you walk through the kind of carbon history of the Earth's history. That didn't sound very good, did it? <laughs> you walk through all of these uh, ancient periods of time. And they talk about, you know, when the dinosaurs roamed, and they talk about the various stages of the earth, and, you know, when amoeba crawled out the slime and became monkeys and then people. It's amazing, just like that. Um, but it does talk about at least two major events when all life was wiped out on earth, and then it came back again. <laughs> I find that fascinating. What is it about this planet that just pushes life through, sometimes against the odds? I was watching a, 
fascinating little film on, on BBC Africa, uh, uh, BBC World uh, yesterday, where there are women in sub-Saharan Africa and they're planning uh, a green wall. They're building a green wall, a wall of trees in sub-Saharan Africa. And basically every country along the southern border of the Sahara has pledged to plant millions of trees. It's a project that's costing, is it 8 billion, 80 billion? I can't remember. But they're planting all of these trees to stop the Sahara Desert encroaching. Life springs up and keeps springing up. In the most inhospitable of places, we still need to get the buddleia bush out of the stonework and the bell tower. Life erupts. Why? Because God said, let there be. Let there be light. And so from source to expression, expression to creation, creation to life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a powerful statement. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let there be light. We sang it a little while ago. I'm just fascinated by it, that light, whatever that looked like or meant, appeared before the sun and the moon were set in the heavens. That light was already there. And when you go to Revelation chapter 22, at the end, it says that they won't need the sun or the moon because the glory of God will give us all the light that we need. So at the very beginning, at the very end of the Bible, there is light without relying on the sun or the moon to provide it. Light shines in the darkness. God spoke light and dispelled darkness. And so in that first paragraph, John takes us all the way back and he wants us to know who it is we're connected to. This is not just a Jewish rabbi. This is not just somebody whose genealogy goes all the way back to deeper origins. This is not just someone whose coming into the world was marked by miraculous events. This is the one who was with God before anything was made. And you're invited in. You're invited in, invited to become children of God. And so John moves from that cosmic picture and then he moves to a picture of a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. And so from the cosmic and the eternal, the kind of whooshy out there, hard to grasp place, we're going to anchor it now in Jesus coming into the world. And so, first, there came a man sent from God. Now, I love this. This is a new thought for me. So, if it's wrong, come up and have a quiet, respectful word with me and say, Alistair, you just preached heresy this morning. <laughs> you know, I love to think that John the Baptist was just as much the one who gave birth to Jesus as Mary did. 
Mary received a visit from the angel Gabriel, who spoke a word to her, and she received it and believed it. It was a strong and a firm word, and it became a physical reality in her womb. And that's how Jesus came into the world. But John is asking us to remember that Jesus is the Word, the Word about to be made flesh. And John, whose own Genesis and Origins, if you remember, were because a word was spoken. This time Zechariah actually didn't believe it. But Zechariah was rendered silent, and the word actually happened. And what was it John came to do? John came to be a witness. What does a witness do? A witness speaks words. A witness speaks words, bearing witness to that which is coming. And so, if you like, John's testimony was a testimony of the Word. It was a testimony of the Word, a promise coming, an unbreakable Word that was about to break in. He came to testify concerning the light. And so, if Mary literally gave birth to Jesus out of her womb, John the Baptist gave birth to the eternal Word made flesh by preparing the way and creating the climate of faith and expectation that would then allow the Word made flesh to appear. And so, in a sense, John was just as much a the Greek word is theotokos, a God-bearer. But he bore the word through his witness. Because the intention was that people hearing it would do one thing, so that through him all might believe. He was not the light. He came as a witness to the light. And then he goes on, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so the light was in the world. Not tied to human conditions or circumstances. God coming into the world to find you. I think I'm going to stop there because I want to savor this, and I think there's plenty more to savor. <laughs> but I want you, and, and sometimes John's gospel seems, you know, a little bit hard to grasp and pin down. It's lovely words, lovely poetry. It flows beautifully. Well, what does it actually mean? What's that going to mean on Tuesday morning when I'm running from a bus? And it means that God has invited you, has invited you by believing in the testimony and the word and the promise that relates to Jesus, to enter into a relationship and a connection with a God whose word predates anything and everything in this world, whose word is reliable and dependable, and whom, on whom you can rely because what he has said he will do. We're used to a world of broken promises. We're used to a world of, world of words. We're used to a world 
where people are fickle and they change their minds. But God has come into this world, borne witness to Himself, and invites you to believe. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Let me finish with that. He came into a world where people saw the world and everything that was around it as theirs. This is our world. We make the rules. We decide where the borders are. If we don't like them, we'll have a war. We make the decisions. We call the shots. We are responsible. A world full of orphans cut off from a relationship with the Father in whose image they are made. He came in order to give us the right to become again children of God. That's the invitation. God has come into this world of meaningless words and empty phrases. He's come into this world to speak truth and strength that will not be broken and will not go away. A word that has endured for thousands and thousands of years and is powerful because God's word does stuff in you, in the world, and ultimately will shape the direction the world is taking. You know, if God has opened your heart and your mind and your understanding to recognize that this stuff matters, then he's given you the right to become a child of God. Not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will. All these earthly things that crowd our minds and our lives and our landscape and our consciousness, we're so caught up with what we have to do, the decisions we have to make, the world we have to run, the job I have to do, the train I have to catch, the thing that I have to do that's really important because I'm so important. And Jesus comes into the world and says to those who will recognize who he is, be my children. Your father wants you back. Turn your life over to me and let the source and the expression and the flow of creation and life and light flow into you and out through you. Be connected, be reconnected and know peace and power and life. This world is passing away but you're invited into the deepest and most profound connection to the one who is the I am. Let's pray together. Lord, so often we are caught up with the pressures and the burdens of what we have to do. So often, Lord, preoccupied by our own importance, by deadlines, so often, Lord, the ones making the decisions between right and wrong, good and evil. And yet you invite us instead to live lives of peace and trust and faith. Invite us to hear and receive a living, powerful word of truth and to know that you, Lord, are the one who will fulfill all your promises. 
You're the one who will direct our steps. You're the one who will calm and soothe our fears. You're the one who will whisper your love. You're the one who will hold up the mirror and challenge us as to our uncleanness and our unholiness. You're the one who will point us to the cross and the grace that has provided a way for us to be restored in relationship to you. So, Lord, if we are in a place of rushing and striving, then overwhelm us. Overwhelm us with your grace and with what it means for us to have been brought into relationship with you. Help us to hear your voice. Slow our living to your peace. Draw us into this mystery. Let us be channels and recipients of the expression of life that flows from the source and know that God is love. So take us into this week, Lord, rich in your grace, stilled in your presence, full of Jesus, bearing light to the world. And let the overflow of your light and your life be a sign of the living God, even in the darkest places of our lives and of our world. For Jesus' sake, amen.